Welcome to the Life is Wondrous podcast. This is a podcast for curious parents out there who want to explore pathways to greater potential, both within themselves and within their children. I couldn't be more excited to be sharing this chat that I just had with Dr. Vanessa Lapointe out of Canada. She is a parenting expert. She is a mom of two boys. She is a registered psychologist with 20 years experience. She's been all over the television and airwaves, both dealing with children and parents. She is a published author and she's been kind enough to sit down and have a chat. There is a whole lot of gold in this conversation and I would ask that if you're a parent out there that you would uh, share the heck out of this one. Uh, sit back and enjoy. Dr. Vanessa, do I call you Dr. Vanessa? Do I call you Dr. V? Do I call you Vanessa? Just let's get it done, over and done with straight up. I answer to all those things. Just don't go calling me Dr. LaPointe because it feels way too stuffy. <laughs> <laughs> done, done. I think, um, as I mentioned, you know, a moment ago before we started recording, you know, we down here, we don't, we, we kind of barely speak English, let alone French. So I think you're, uh, I think you're good with that. Perfect. So thank you so much for joining us. I mean, I guess, you know, I'd like to know a little bit uh, straight off the bat in terms of your story i mean i'd love to know why you got into this journey to begin with why you became a registered you know child psychologist or psychologist why you kind of took the the pathway that you did yeah so you know it's one of those things where i always had a pull from a very young age to work with children i didn't know in what capacity and i didn't ultimately know where it was that that would end up taking me but i always knew that i would work with children and so my very first jobs were you know day camp leader and uh doing summer camps and teaching figure skating lessons and doing all of these kinds of things um with children and then as i got into high school and and was getting closer that to that time where i needed to figure out um, you know, what that was all going to look like when I grew up, um, I got more interested in psychology. And ultimately, I ended up almost failing out of my first year of university, true story, um, and decided it was time I was doing a science degree, and it wasn't really going the way that I'd hoped, I wasn't on fire about it. And so I needed to switch um, gears. And I ended up in a biological psychology program with a really big focus on um, uh sort of neuroscience and how the brain goes and grows. And uh, and I was completely fascinated mm -hmm. and uh, did the deep dive down the rabbit hole of the world of psychology um, and then was able to put that together in terms of some graduate work uh, around working with children and um, ended up in the field of psychology. And so that's what got me there. And I started my career and um, thought I knew it all and then became a mother. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> All of this stuff that they taught me is, you know, a big sack of lies. None of it works. These kids don't make sense. I, I felt like my the axis of my whole earth had shifted and I needed to learn it all anew. And so I really have, um, you know, very humbly walked the journey of being both a mother and a psychologist. My boys are now 13 and 16, and it hasn't been a straight line. Um, it's been wonderful, and it's come with big, uh, gorgeous peaks and really, really deep, dark valleys. Mm. And so, you know, to figure that all out for myself as a parent and be um, really, truly honored to walk along other parents as they figure their journey out. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's huge. I mean, I think that word just, you know, humility, uh, that's a really important one, huh? You know, I, I feel like for me, especially, um, it's kind of one big journey of uh, realizing how kind of selfish you are in a sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, and how you know? not grown up we are. Yeah. You know, we become adults, but we're really just children walking around in adult bodies. And then yeah. we have children and like the spotlight lands on that. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. And I love, I love the fact that, you know, so much of what I see in your work, a lot of it is focused, you know, on us as parents. Um, I feel like, 
you know, I almost kind of went, is it, you know, should, should they be called a child psychologist or a parent psychologist? You know, yeah. that's kind of how it feels a little bit because, I mean, I'll let you be the judge of that. But, you know, we know that that's huge, right? I mean, you know, children are children and children are uh, complex and they're different and they're amazing and, you know, but but we are the ones ultimately that are kind of steering that ship to a degree. Absolutely. You know, I'm a child psychologist and I don't work with children. Yeah. So I, I mean, sometimes I do uh, observations and, um, and am involved in assessments, but the work to be done is with the parent. And I'm always very careful to say it's not because you necessarily have caused any of the challenges that your child may be facing, but rather that you are definitely the answer to those challenges. And I say to parents, listen, you can send your kid to see me an hour a week and we yeah. might as well take your money and burn it and take <laughs> your time and just discard it because then your child comes home to you and marinates in the environment of your home, yeah. your relationship with your child. You yeah. are the one ultimately 24 seven that is making their world go round and that is moving the pieces in the child's world, in their environment in order to be best suited to that child's developmental uh, journey. And so really the power uh, lies with the parent and we would be, I think, very well served to honor parents in that, to champion parents in that, and to allow children to just get to rest into the care of the parent. Yeah, well said. I mean, I think it's huge, you know, like I've been a father for six years. Noah, our oldest, just turned six and Olive, our little girl, is two. And, you know, it's been an amazing ride for, for both myself and, and Alice, my wife. And I think that, uh, you know, I, f I feel, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to ha have a great life and, and had, you know, had some adventures and done a lot of cool stuff with work and, you know, seen a lot of the world. And, but I, I really feel like being a father is, you know, without doubt, the highest mandate, you know, that, that exists on planet Earth. And I also feel like it's crazy because it's, it's, while it's the highest mandate, it's also kind of like you get the least amount of training for, you get the least amount of preparation for, right? That's right. And it'll bring you to your knees. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so what, what is that? I mean, that you've probably just given it to me, but I kind of wanted to ask a little bit in terms of like, for people who aren't familiar with your work, mm. What, what is your, you know, what could you, could you kind of give us a little bit about your philosophy, you know, your why, your reasoning? Yeah. yeah. And so the way that I sort of think through all of that is there really are um, a couple of layers that we have to be considering. Without question, the idea that the parent-child relationship is central to healthy child development. Uh, at this point in terms of the science of child development, that is an irrefutable fact. So the thing that makes it happen for kids is when they have deep, caring relationship with at least one big person in their life, um, usually a parent. And so that's, you know, we can call it attachment or we can call it connection or we can call it whatever we want to call it. But that is a really, really big piece of making sure that it goes exactly as it needs to go for that child to actualize into their fullest potential. The second big piece is development that we actually we have to get how it works. We have to get that 25% of two year olds are going to bite. <laughs> Not because they're rotten little yeah. so and so's, but because that's just sort of where they're at and it's yeah. how they're regulating and making sense of their world. Yeah. And we don't need to make them wrong for that. We also don't then just let them, you know, chew on all of the other children. <laughs> we figure out how to put boundaries in place and we do it with heart and with compassion yeah. rather than punishing, shaming, or blaming the child. Um, you know, further along the idea of development, four-year-olds don't share, 
nine-year-olds turn into four-year-olds when you ask them to do something and they really had their heart set on something else. I have a 16-year-old. He's very, very lovely. And I will tell you that teenagers sometimes turn into four-year-olds when they're up against the wall and life gets really hard and they're yeah. very overwhelmed by all of that. And so the first was to understand that relationship is everything for the growing child. The second is to, as big people, really get that child development's a real thing. They're not miniature adults and we have to come alongside them exactly where they're at the third thing is what i refer to as consciousness or conscious parenting which is to understand that when you were a child the environment around you created your mind particularly across the first six to eight years of life so whatever environment you grew in it formed your mind it it actually was the driving force behind the neural architecture of your brain and the driving force behind the emergence of your concept of who you are as a person. So the environment in your childhood formed your mind, then you grew up and became a parent. And mm -hmm. now the mind formed for you in your childhood is forming the um, environment around you in which your child is now growing. So the environment forms the mind and then the mind forms the environment and your children grow in that environment. So you can't just, you know, wash your hands of it and hope for the best. You actually have to rip it open and do the deep dive into who it is that you are because you will parent as you were parented even if you swear up and down that you're not going to do that as soon as your child and they're here to be our our greatest teachers as soon as you feel the trigger you know they punch you in the face or they throw something or they hurt their sibling or they um they get the greedy gimmies or whatever they do and you feel the trigger come up in you and even if you're really well-intentioned, you will hear your mother or your father come out your mouth. And so then we got to figure out, oh, well, look at that. How are we going to make sense of all of these things? And so it's those three things. Attachment, relationship is everything. Child development is real. And consciousness, you must do your own work. You have to grow you in order to grow them. Yeah, wow. I mean... I almost don't know where to start, you know, like the, there is so much in that. There is so much in those points and they're all equally, you know, really, really important. Uh, and, and maybe I don't know if they, you know, I don't know if there is an equal or if they sit on a chain, but they're all very, very important. Um, I definitely want to touch on a lot of those things. I definitely want to touch on, you know, our subconscious programming. I think that's huge and that's been a, that's a real kind of part of our journey that we're on at Wondrous. Um, I definitely want to touch, you know, maybe just quickly, you know, you talked, I think in your second point, you talked about expectations mm -hmm. and understanding that children are actually developing. They're not meant to be like born and just like be these fully formed adults that are like are on our timetable and kind of like on our psyche. And I think, you know, I, I feel like I personally may have benefited from like reading, you know, parenting right from the start um, seven years ago because, you know, we read, we read kind of some other stuff and, and I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, trying to put anyone down or anyone's philosophy down and everyone's on a journey and everyone, you know, approaches things differently. But our, our personal stance at the time was kind of around this whole thing of like, you know, your baby should be doing this by this week and this by this week and sleeping through the night by this week and, you know, some like controlled crying stuff. And, you know, I, I think back on that and I just go, what, you know, you, you, you're just a fool like it did it didn't work and it, it was just it was counterproductive and if anything it just made us more stressful because we had these all these high expectations on ourselves as young first-time parents right and then when things didn't go as it said it should go in the book you know it was like I don't wow. know man you know it just I I think that those expectations especially for first-time parents that don't really understand and that feel like they do have all this pressure in terms of them having to kind of perform you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because we, we kind of buy into this myth that development isn't real 
and that children are tiny adults. And if your kid isn't sleeping through the night, or if you have the kid that's the biter, or the kid that won't share, or the kid that's you know slow to learn to read at school or whatever it is, it therefore means that you have done something wrong. And so the, on the one hand, I, you know, I listed out those three things as though they're very discreet from one another, but already you can see how layered and sort of messy and murky it gets. Mm -hmm. Because where is it that we learned we must perform in mm -hmm. order to be, you know, deemed as though we're doing this thing called life the right way. We learned that when we were children mm -hmm. and we were being raised by behaviorist parents mm -hmm. um, who were, you know, all of them, the majority of them very well intentioned, but they would have had to raise us that way because of the times that they were parenting in. And so, you know, we learned very early on that you exchange performance for acceptance. You exchange performance for value. You exchange performance for love. And then we grow up and we have kids and we're like, right, you need to sleep through the night by six weeks of age and you need to do this by this by this by this by this yeah. or I'm failing. Yeah. And if I fail, I'm not accepted. I'm not loved. I'm not valued, which mm. makes no sense up here. Mm. It's all subconscious programming. And really, when we get right down to it, that subconscious programming is what is running the show for us. It's not, it's not up here. It's yeah. all up that lurks beneath the surface. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. And like, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of, diff obviously there's been a lot of research into that and a lot of, you know, developments in brain science. And I don't know, I mean, you might be able to correct me on this, but I've heard a, a lot of different stats, but one of them that I read was, you know, something around 90% of our thought life is subconscious, you know? Oh yeah. And I would think that that's probably an underestimate. And so um, the conscious mind is running at about 2000 bits per second and the subconscious mind at about 50 million bits per second. And so it's the subconscious mind that's absolutely in charge. I have this beautiful uh, friend and colleague um, who uh, sh she speaks a different language and I think it must sound way more beautiful in her language, but I will tell you it in English. Uh, she said that the longest road that you will ever travel is the one from the head to the heart. And I really think that that's, you know, what this idea is all about in terms of figuring out like, why is it that we tick the way we do? You know what, I spent 13 years at university studying the science of child development, studying the brain, studying psychology. I mean, I know this field inside and out, backwards and frontwards, up and down, I know all of it. And yet, you know, I yell at my kids sometimes. I get really frustrated with them. I, I've done all sorts of things where, you know, I think, wow, people actually pay me money to like tell them what to do with their children and check me out now. Yeah, yeah. And so why is it that I can have all of the knowledge but not be able to translate that into my being so that I'm bringing that forward at, every day all day into how i do it with my own children and that's where the real work lies in growing ourselves up and there's nothing like becoming a parent to be gifted the opportunity yourself to go back in time have a great childhood mm. and translate that do-over into how it is that you will now approach the raising of your own children massive massive and I, I mean, I love that. And I love you, you know, being honest and, and just human enough to kind of to say that as well, because I think it's probably quite releasing for a lot of people, you know, to have all. And I love that quote. And I've heard that quote. I love it. It's such oh. an amazing quote, you know, and it's like having all that head knowledge, you know, and, and the connection between these two places. And and how do you make that journey? Like the, the longest journey someone will ever take is from their head to their heart, you know? Not for the faint of heart. Let me tell you, if you're going to get on the path and begin the journey, I mean, the, the, the payoff, although that vibrates a little bit low, the payoff in all of that is going to be astronomical. Yes. It'll be so worth it. And oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Is it humbling? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's healing as well. Oh. You know, like we've all got stuff, 
like everyone has stuff it doesn't matter if you were raised in a you know you know mother and father household and there was love and everyone has stuff you know and you know I've been doing that personally myself um you know going on that journey and and looking back and you know I I I never had a father I grew up in a single mom household and you know, and I, actually I'm very grateful in some regards because I think had of it been, you know, she stayed with my father, I think it would have been very toxic, a really toxic mm. environment to grow up yeah. in. And so, but we all have our things, you know, and it's not, it wasn't until becoming a father that I really have kind of entered this journey of going, okay, well, what about that little boy, you know, which was me, you know, 30 years ago? Like, well, what about that little kid? And is he still around somewhere? And is he still, does he need to be kind of... Um, spoken to you know does he need to be kind of got alongside of and I I actually and it sounds you know that sounds kind of quite spiritual or or, you know you know crazy in a sense but I love what you say Um, I love your quote uh, that where all of us are all the ages we've ever been that's right that's I think that's I think someone could hear that and it would just go straight over their head they wouldn't think twice about it but I heard it and and I just think that's really profound. Like, to, can you unpack that a little bit? Mm-hmm. I envision it a little bit like, you know, the Russian dolls, the Matryoshka doll that has like, you know, the, the little doll inside the other doll inside the other doll. And you can hmm. go on and on and on. And we never, ever lose who it was that we were before. And so I'm 45 years old talking but true and (laughs) inside of me there's a one-year-old and a two-year-old and a three-year-old and a six-year-old and a 12-year-old in all of the ages that I've ever been it never entirely goes away and what's incredibly important to know about that inner child piece is that in the first six to eight years when our minds are being formed it is especially key that we're able to come alongside um those parts of ourselves and understand where it was that our needs might not have been met, even if we had the awesomest, most well-intentioned parents, to understand where it is that our needs might not have been met and how that is still alive within us now. And so I'll give you an example. I um, remember being five or six years old and I would crawl into my parents' bed at nighttime because I was desperate for them to never ever get divorced. And I had this like deep-seated fear that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and probably because children are master energy readers or whatever mm-hmm. it is, uh, I was sensing that there was turmoil um, and certainly a several years later, when I was 16 years old, my parents separated. And it was like my worst nightmare coming true. I, I, I didn't even know how to handle myself or what to do in all of that. And so I always had this fear of separation and fear of losing a parent and fear of something was going to get in the way of all of that. And then I grew up and I became a mother, got married, became a mother, um, and eventually divorced myself when my boys were uh, 10 and 13 years of age. And in the lead up to that divorce, do you think that I was my grown up adult self? Hmm. Oh, no. Hmm. I was my six year old self, hmm. desperate for mommy and daddy to sort it out, desperate hmm. for mommy and daddy to, um, you know, make it all be okay. And so these moments present themselves, I believe not randomly, in our lives so that we have an opportunity for the do-over. And Mm -hmm. as you, you know, as I went through my own divorce and witnessed my children's journey and all of that, I am literally catapulted back in time Mm -hmm. to my, my child self's journey through all of that with my parents and given this golden opportunity to make sense of that anew and in the doing of that to heal it for myself and in real time heal it for my children so that they then don't need to grow up Mm. and repeat the same pattern for the lesson to be learned right and so i mean i could tell you three thousand more examples of those kinds of things where we continue to repeat the patterns of our own childhood and that's a very obvious pattern parents get divorced you grow up you get divorced Mm. Um, but there's often really subtle patterns where we're pulling the thread of the story that is family or or familiar 
from our childhood or sometimes down the family line because we know intergenerationally that stuff can transfer through epigenetics. Um, and at some point, we will get our heads slammed into the brick wall of life, which is the invitation to step in, come alongside the inner child, help that child to grow and feel safe, and then find your way forward from there. Massive. Yeah, it's massive. I mean, thank you for your honesty. As I said, I think it's so good to to actually just be human and be vulnerable. And I think that's how we actually can help each other and get alongside and add value. And, you know, I know for me personally, like even this year, it was a bizarre year. It was a really strange year. And I kind of felt like I went through a bit of a dark night of the soul in just some different Mm -hmm. ways, just, you know, just cognitively, you know, mentally, some strange things were happening that I hadn't experienced before. I was you know, I was kind of going, hang on, have I had anxiety for a long time and, and never even realized it or never called it that or never, you know, there was a lot of stuff and I really had to do some some digging, some excavating and kind of look into some stuff from the past and go, okay, well, hang on. Yeah, you actually did go through that as a child. That was really traumatic. Actually, yeah, you did go through that. That was actually really traumatic. You went through that, you know, and I think what we do is, and especially maybe, I don't know if it's a male or female thing, it's probably both, but you know, we grow up and my whole philosophy was, no, like it's, I'm good. Like I know that happened. I acknowledge that happened. I'm not trying to sweep it under the carpet. I acknowledge it. I've grieved over it. I grieved over it when I was young and I'm okay now. I'm fine, you know? And that's kind of, that's, that was in the stance I was taking, you know? And it's like, sometimes you get, it's like what you said, you hit that brick wall and it's like, are you, are you really fine? Are you, are you really okay? And I think it's, it's one thing to kind of have to respond, right? Because something has just, you've just hit a brick wall or something has gone down and it's like, no, you, you have to look at this now. That's one thing. But it's another thing to kind of go, well, are there some practices or are there, like, can we preempt this a little bit? Can we do some, you know what I mean? Can we do some work on ourselves so that my child doesn't have to be, you know, bear the brunt of my weird outburst in six months or whatever it is like can you kind of help us you know maybe with some even practical uh learning around that or or you know what's your thoughts on that yeah i do think that there are ways to become increasingly aware of your own programming which is another way to talk about sort of that which lurks beneath the surface, the the childlike versions of ourselves that come forward. Um, I do, I really do believe that there's a lot that we can do to be on top of that. And I'll talk with you about that a little bit. And I also think that without challenge, there will be no growth. And so we do have to struggle. It's part of the human condition. It's part of what allows us to evolve into the fullest version of who we're intended to be in this lifetime. And so there, there does have to be some grindiness about it. We can't all just, you know, sunshine and roses, um, (laughs) skate through it. Yeah. The other piece is that the wake up calls that we will all receive and everybody all through the course of life, you will get wake up calls. Uh, which is an invitation to step into your fullest potential. Um, The wake-up calls start out quiet. Hmm. And if they're ignored, they get a little louder, just like a child that you're ignoring, they get a little louder. Hmm. And if they're ignored more, then they get louder. And for some of us, um, they will need to give very loud (laughs) before we're like, okay, (laughs) I hear you. I'm ready to do the work, right? Um, and so the preemptive part is to be um, to become very aware and listening for the call mm-hmm. so that as you're getting the little nudges along the way, you you understand that it's a wake up call. It's an invitation to grow yourself. And there's, you know, I think a lot of uh, ways that we can go about that. Um, I have found in my own life uh, having a guide who assists me in that process has been uh, incredibly important. Um, I spend um, two hours a week in my own therapy sessions, and I'm also part of a community that comes together once a week to talk about uh, consciousness kinds of ideas and how that applies to our lives and to our parenting and other kinds of things. And so I'm, I'm, and I have a mentor, a teacher and all of that who kind of leads me through those 
things. And so I think having a guide, somebody who really is able to make sense of the importance of relationship, the reality of child development, and the key role of consciousness in uh, parenting um, is, you know, a central thing. I think really getting uh, to have a relationship with all of those former versions of yourself is another key piece. And so um, there's a beautiful book written by a man named John Bradshaw. It's called Homecoming. And for anybody who's really interested in doing this work, I would strongly suggest that you read that book um, where he gives you, um, you know, activities and meditations and other things uh, that will allow you to develop, you know, just like we feed our bodies nutritious food every day and we exercise and we do all of these things. Uh, we also have to feed that other part of ourselves. And so developing some kind of a daily practice that alerts you to the reality of that subconscious world. Um, your daily practice can be a lot of different things. It could be some inner child work that you do every morning and every evening uh, before you go to bed. Um, your daily practice might be that you find ways to investigate your mind. I love the work of Byron Katie in that, um, which she has freely available to the world on her website, thework.com, uh, where you get to, you know, really investigate your thoughts and turn them around. When I've been in, you know, the darkest period of my life, which was following um, the divorce from my children's father, uh, I probably worked 50 to 70 thoughts a day where I was constantly like investigating my mind. Is it true? Is it mm. true? Is it true? Can you know mm. for sure it's true? Mm. What kind of feelings come up for you and you believe that it's true? You know, really um, knowing that just because we have the thought, it doesn't make it real. And also then knowing that our thoughts create our reality. And so if I get really attached to that thought and it's a stressful, disconcerting kind of thought, well, life is going to feel rather stressful and disconcerting then, isn't it? Mm. And so, you know, doing some inner child work, being willing to explore the mind um, and understanding that you do have to make a daily practice of those things in the same way that you would in any other area of your life. Yeah, that's great. It's really great. And I think, you know, obviously someone has to place um, weight on, on that, you know, it, 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 you do have to be intentional, right? Like there's kind of no two ways about it. You can, I, I like what you said, like there has to be struggle, like struggle is part of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, out of the soil, you know, out of the dirt, you know, beautiful things bloom and grow. And, and I, I, I do think there's just a universal law at play with that. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. Sometimes you kind of wish it wasn't like that. You know, <laughs> can I just be Zen? Like, can I just be like levitating and just floating and just like happy and just, and, and it all just comes to me. But yeah. I think you're right. Like sometimes you actually have to have those moments in order to have the growth. Yeah. Well, a very dear friend of mine, when I was, you know, early on in my own personal growth work, uh, said to me, I'd love to show you the way. And I just love you too much to do that. <laughs> so there is something about, you know, having to just sink into it. And I think that's, that, that really well and truly is the gift of parenthood, because I haven't yet met a parent who is like, oh, it's total, it's a breeze. I haven't had like any hiccups. I've had no cause for, you know, introspection and like freaking out about all, like I've never met in 20 years of doing this work. I have never met a parent who was like, yeah, it's cool. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's you'd, a be, big invitation. You'd, be, you'd be worried, right? You'd be like, you'd be, they'd be delusional. <laughs> yeah. I'd want to like shake them like a snow globe, you know, like really? Cause I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, I guess like this, I, I'm loving this conversation and there's so many different, you know, tacks that we could take. I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about um, that whole idea of connection. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because I, because, you know, I, I'm kind of flipping it right now because personally I can talk about that self-work all day. Like mm -hmm. that is such a huge issue and, and a big topic that I'm really fascinated in, in terms of ourselves as individuals and, and doing that excavation. And I think there's so much in it. So, I mean, but I kind of think let's let's just flip it for a second and talk a little bit about the connection between, you know, a parent and their child. And really that whole philosophy of like 
to be honest with you, you know, candidly, I, I didn't know that much about the, the whole idea of attachment parenting, right? And, mm-hmm. and when I started looking into it, I was kind of like, okay, there's, there's kind of some interesting, there's different people saying different things. And then, then you find, you know, I found a, a quote from, um, I'm not sure who it was, a psychologist, I think, in the States. And he basically said something along the lines of, look, it's not, it's not meant to be a set of tricks, like an A plus B equals C. That's not what it is. It's yeah. actually kind of, and I think this is what you're saying, it's, it's grounded in connection. Like that's actually ultimately what it is all about. Right. Can we kind of explore that for a little bit and, and talk, mm-hmm. you know, maybe how we cultivate that or, or what that really means? Yeah. And, you know, really when we go the route of tricks, we're divorcing ourselves from our humanity. And so it is about, I was reading an article just the other day where somebody was laying out the um, how ridiculous it is that we use this word parenting because we don't talk about being in relationship with our friends and friending <laughs> and we don't talk about being with our um, spouse and wifing or husbanding. We don't talk about, you know, being children of our own parents and childing and yet we've come up with this term parenting, which somehow pulls us away from the concept that it is a relationship. And so, you know, the science around it is really fascinating. And dating back to the 1940s, when John Bowlby, who we call the father of attachment, Sir John Bowlby, um, was really developing the theory of attachment. And then a lot of really, um, you know, fascinating studies and research and, and It's all still going on even to this day. And what he was able to show us was that that concept of proximity, closeness in the parent-child relationship is really important. And he sort of uncovered that it is the universal need of all children everywhere, that they must have that that proximity to their big people, or they're not okay. And we've got all sorts of, you know, horrific examples from our history, the Nazi baby factories, Mm. where the death rates in those babies uh, that didn't have relationships with big people who cared about them and loved on them, they were fed on schedules. And yes, they were housed and sheltered, but they weren't loved. And so they died en masse. Wow. One of my three- really, I didn't know that. So, so that, so I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. So, oh, yeah. so they literally, they, they were fed, you know, they, they were kind of like given the, the tools to keep on living, but, but they still died without, they, is that what you're saying? That's what it is. Wow. And so the Nazis were, um, you know, trying to um, cultivate an army, grow yeah. soldiers. And so they had these baby factories and, um, and we know that those babies, uh, the majority of them that I don't know the exact percentage, but it's, it's up in like the seventies kind of percentage wise, uh, it's a lot of babies that died. And so, um, so we know that there's something about that relationship. We look at children that have come out of, you know, atrocious kind of orphanage situations. Um, the Romanian orphans are an example of that, uh, where there were a lot of children in very subpar um, situations getting their physical needs met, but not their emotional needs. They weren't being loved on. Mm. And then um, we go forward and there's, you know, just so much more research around the key role of that uh, relationship and that it's not just physical contact and closeness that is the the, uh, thing that the child needs, but rather it's emotional contact Mm. and closeness. Mm. And so when I work with children who are grieving the death of a parent, we're, we're working on continuing to cultivate the experience of emotional closeness because that's what they need Mm. more than anything. And so when we make sense of all of that, we actually understand that the relationship the child has with their big person is valued in terms of, you know, sometimes we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and at the base is our physical needs and so on and so forth. But the reality is that children will seek out the relationship above and beyond food. Hmm. It's so important to them. They would actually sacrifice being fed if it meant getting to be loved. 
And so we have witnessed, you know, in all of these different circumstances, babies who develop a condition called failure to thrive and die in the absence of love. So we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that this is what makes a child's world go round. The relationship is key. Then you fast forward to modern day parenting, well, pseudo modern day parenting. And somewhere around the 1950s, there was a very big shift in the dominant pop culture of child raising, which kind of um, became quite focused on the facade of the behavior and the facade of the child and placed value on that above all else. And so if the child wasn't behaving in a way that made us feel good, mm. in a way that was convenient, um, in a way that suited our schedule, if the child wasn't behaving, we realized we could kind of do all of these things and magically we would get the results that we wanted. And so, you know, if a child isn't sleeping, you just leave them to cry. Mm. Magically, what happens? They start sleeping. Mm. Well, pat on the back that must work then right or if a child is you know um acting out towards a sibling or not um performing well at school then we punish them somehow we take something they love away from them um maybe we um smack them maybe we you know whatever we do and solution now they're behaving better and so pat ourselves on the back that must work right but what we didn't get is that the reason those things were so-called working in terms of getting rid of the behaviors is that it was at the expense of the child being able to experience the relationship unconditionally. So it was the ultimate sacrificial play where you took the relationship that you were having with the child, which is, remember, their most important need. And they will serve that need above everything else, including their own developmental needs. And so you take the relationship that you have with the child and you put it on the line mm. in order to serve good behavior. And what is good behavior anyways? Like at what point did we conflate morality with child development? Mm. I mean, it's a ludicrous thing, but we all, how often do you hear that phrase? Good boy, good girl, right? Mm. We use it all the time. And so, this is what happened. We began to use these behavioral strategies uh, from a behaviorist school of thought. Um, and what we didn't understand was that we were sacrificing the greatest need of the child underneath all of that. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. And it's challenging. You know, that's going to challenge a lot of people. And I'm, I'm sure you're very used to that. I'm sure you're very used to Not having, you know, like popular. awkward kind of conversations and, <laughs> you know, right. interviews. And, and I think that's good. I think that's good. I think it's good to be challenged. And I, I think, you know, uh, and what I want to kind of just kind of unpack a little bit there is that idea that it's not a set of tricks. So when we talk about, and, and, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, what you're saying is, okay, yes, we, we know that, take breastfeeding, right? Something that I'm not, you know, that familiar with. But take take breastfeeding. We all know that, it's, you know, it's, it's intrinsically very powerful, you know, create a connection, you know, human bond takes place in that moment. Like it's good physically, the milk that they're getting, like all that stuff, we know that, right? But what about the mum who isn't producing any milk and can't breastfeed her baby? Does that then suddenly, oh, they don't have the, you're a bad mum, you, you don't have the connection. I don't think that's what you're saying. You're actually, you're actually specifying it's the emotional connection that trumps kind of the physical tasks, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are so many channels in for that emotional connection to be uh, laid down with beautiful deep roots that allow that um, tree, that plant to go forward and bear fruit. And so we have to understand that when we get very attached to the form of this, mm. that's what's divorcing us from our humanity. Yeah. We have to release our attachment to form and outcome and understand that it is about um, the being mm. within us. And I love Eckhart Tolle has this gorgeous quote, which if I could remember it, I would share it with you now, but I'll give you the Coles Notes version of it, uh, where he basically says, the doing flows from the being. 
And so when I wrote my first book, I developed this three-part mantra that was see it, then feel it, then be it. And the reason that I landed on this mantra, which I have shared with parents for years and years and years, is um, that the number one question that I get asked as a child psychologist is, what do I do when? What do I do when my kid this? What do I do when? What do I do when I can't breastfeed and I'm going to rob my child of this opportunity to be deeply bonded to me? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Mm. And the honest to goodness answer is with 13 years of post-secondary education under my belt, I've been child raising myself now for almost 17 years. I've been out in the field of um, the practice of psychology for almost 20 years now. And if you ask me what to do, I have no idea. Like, good luck. And that'll be $300. Um, and the reason that I don't know what to do is because that's not my child. And I'm not you. And I'm not in your home. I don't know what happened at your dinner table last night. I don't know that your family dog died two months ago. I don't know the ongoing conflicts that you have with your own mother. I don't, I don't know any of those things. So I don't know. Like, good luck. And the issue is that it's the wrong question. It, the question ought not to be, what do I do when, but rather, how do I be? Mm. How do I be mm. when my child is upset? Mm. How do I be in this moment where I'm uncertain of what's the right decision to make for mm. my child medically or educationally or whatever? How do I be in all of that? Because when you get the being, all of this Stuff sorted out the doing flows from the being and that's mm. why we don't need tricks and you know if we put it into adult terms like imagine your best friend shows up on your doorstep tonight sobbing inconsolably with grief do you think to yourself okay hold on I just read that book about how to comfort grief-stricken friends let me run into my living room and remind myself of the three-step strategy right and if you were to do that and actually you know, employ that with your friend on your front step tonight, your friend is going to be like, are you crackers? Like, what are you doing? Right? Yeah. Our children are the same. Mm. When we get all weird and read all the weird parenting books and then, you know, have to do all the weird, like behavioral control techniques, our kids are like, wait, what? <laughs> are you supposed to be in charge here? Like, what are you doing, you weirdo? Right? And, and then they intrinsically begin to not trust us. Mm. And the whole thing with the relationship being everything, we need for them. So the relationship invites them to lean in on us. And when they're leaning on us, metaphorically, we have this point of contact, connection with them. So when I go here, they follow me. If I go here, because we're connected, they follow me. Mm -hmm. And so when we invite the lean in, we get to be ultimately in the lead of them. They want mm -hmm. to do our bidding because they kind of like us and they mm -hmm. trust us. Mm -hmm. They trust us to hold their heart in our hands and to keep that safe. When you get all weird and tricks and strategies oriented, your kids are responding to you exactly the same way that that grief stricken friend would be responding to you were you to employ those kinds of, you know, manualized responses to them. So we have to step away from that. Having said that, yeah, like figure out a little bit about child development. That's cool. Do that because that'll help you understand and make sense of your kid. And don't be weird. That's <laughs> going to be in my next book. The key to the key to successful parenting. Don't be weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be hard. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, no, I love that. I mean, let's talk a little bit about a little bit further about that. Like in terms of, okay, the person that says okay, but am I meant to be an authority or a friend or both? Or what's the difference? Like, you know what I mean? What, what, what do you say about that? Yeah, there is a hierarchical order to the parent-child relationship. So the parent is here, or the big person, be a teacher, be a caregiver, whatever your role is. The big person is here and the child is here. And not in a gross, yucky way. Mm. This is in a nurturing, compassionate way. Because kids are looking around and the natural order of things is that we are meant to be in the lead of them. Mm. They are meant to rest 
into our care so that they don't have to tell us how to do it by getting louder with their behaviors and louder with their upset. They're meant to rest into our care. And when they can rest into our care, then they are released to the developmental process. But if they have to redirect all their energy to being like, hello, I am not okay over here. How many other ways do I have to tell you that I'm not okay over here? Then they aren't, they, they have to redirect energy to managing the relationship rather than being able to go and grow. When you are present at the birth of a newborn babe, you watch them. They can't see very much and usually they have their eyes closed at first. And then they start to get their little eyes cracked open. And, and again, they can't see very well. They can see a perfect distance of 12 inches. That's you holding them right there. And they'll start to look around and they might catch a light and be distracted by that. And they look around and then they find your eyes and they're like, oh, there you are. I mean, they can be moments old, but they know you are their best bet because hmm. you're here and they're there and they're counting on you to show up and get this right for them. And what happens to you? Have, do you remember this experience with your own children? when their eyes landed on yours yeah, the first time, yeah, yeah. what happened inside? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the highest, it's, it, it's the height of the human experience. That's what I'd Ooh. say about it. Right. And there's this instantaneous like swell, like you decide in that very moment that you will leap tall buildings in a single bound and jump in front of moving trains for this kid mm -hmm. because they looked at you. Yeah. That's the power of it, right? And they know to find you because you are their best bet. So there is a hierarchical order to that. There is a big person in the lead. And if you ever talk to people who are doing end of life care for their own parents, how uncomfortable that is for them, it's uncomfortable because this has happened. Hmm. And now the child is in the lead and they want no part of it. Even if they're 55 years old, they want no part of it. Yeah. My my eldest son um, contracted meningitis when he was eight years old. Who did I call my first call from the hospital? My mom, because mm. the order is always there that she's my big person. I go back to her. Mm. And so, so there is an order to it. And I'm not saying that then you get to be, you know, not kind to your kids because people in charge are always kind. Mm. You ask my boys, they know that that's one of the golden rules of life. People in charge are always kind. And so we it's not that we then have free license to be horrible, um, but rather that re the responsibility then is upon us to lead uh, with compassion, to find a way to navigate all of this with firmness and with kindness in equal measure. Mm. Well said, it's very, very, very powerful. What, what, what is kind of um, inspiring you right now? What, what, do you, what do you get inspired about? What are you kind of excited about in this area? Yeah. Well, my partner and I developed this course, Parenting 2.0, uh, a couple of years ago. And what's incredible about that is you can never take somebody where you haven't taken yourself. And he and I have both been on, you know, really interesting uh, journeys as we all have been and putting the pieces of that together to make sense of our own paths and also to um, help others understand their path. And so it's a, an incredible thing to be sharing that with the world and getting to hear about how it's transforming lives. Um, I really, you know, uh, as I, I'm, I'm on this side of 45 now. So I'm like, you know, zooming along to 50. And I um, think about how wonderfully freeing it is in this stage of my life to um, get to show up and do my professional work very authentically as who I am in my real life. And, um, you know, I joke about when I was a brand new psychologist, I, I was really kind of like, it has to go this way and I must be like this and blah, 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 and well, that didn't work out. Um, and so now I just like walk out on stage naked all the time. I mean, not really, but yeah. 
it's a wonderful thing to live authentically as who you are, to be um, to free to be free to be who who you are really meant to be, and to be getting to bring that into my work right now um, with the teaching that we're doing. Uh, we, we're um, we've already sort of put together uh, the outline and ideas that will be in our book on divorce, mm-hmm. uh, given that sixty percent of the population is experiencing that. So, yeah. um, and how we can you know really make sure that we do the best job we can with ourselves big people so our kids get the best possible shot yeah that's awesome that's awesome yeah that that sounds really exciting and I mean it's it's interesting isn't it because there's you know that whole thing around divorce it's like oh yeah you could you could be idealistic and just say oh don't get divorced but that's not the world we live in you know (laughs) so actually to create the tools and to create you know a, a resource for people to actually find strength and healing and and empower that's 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 pretty cool yeah, I hope so. I just want to ask one quick question. I think we're getting to the end of our time now and I, I could talk all day with you because this has been amazing. So thank you again. But what, what, what do you think is the difference and could you break down the difference between what you would call emotional health and what you would call mental health? Because I feel like those two terms, practically speaking, like mental health is talked about so much in society today. Mm-hmm. We understand, you know, that to a degree. And, and emotional health, like, h- how do you see those two? And, 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 you know, how do you kind of break that down for mm-hmm. people? I mean, I, I guess because I'm a psychologist and I diagnose people, um, you know, I've done that my whole career, um, not without trepidation. <laughs> and so being part of that world of mental health, for me, it, that is almost that I often talk about um, big T truths and little t truths and the little t truths are the things that are you know fed by the ego fed by fear um don't really necessarily serve us well uh especially when we get attached to the story around all of that and the big t truths are the things that set us free the big t truths are when we really get who it is that we actually are when we can understand to to the fullest um non-limits of our limits Hmm. our core truths. So when I hear, you know, the mental health thing, I think small t truth. Hmm. When I hear emotional health, I think big T truth. Hmm. And it's not that I'm saying anxiety is not real or depression is not real. I mean, oh my gosh, I see people struggling with those things all the time. And I have struggled in my own life at times with some of those pieces. And so I know those experiences to be real. And I, and I know uh, diagnostically how to, you know, get people to fit categories in order to serve the systems that we all live and work in. I really get all of that. And when we, when we feed the wolf of fear around all of that mental health stuff, we actually uh, perpetuate it. Hmm. When we feed the wolf of hope, the wolf of love, um, that will be the wolf that grows. And, and so it takes me back to that core piece of emotional health. Well, where is it that we learned to be anxious? Hmm. Hmm. And if we could focus on emotional health and well being of ourselves, of and for our children, and even on down the family line, how might then we change the landscape in terms of mental health? Hmm. Yeah. And so I see them kind of, you know, they, they coexist and they intersect. And one is driven by an internalization of pathology. And the other is driven by a real acknowledgement of the power, the strength, the resilience of the human spirit and what it is that we can do as big people for our littles so that that's what gets to emerge and come forth uh, rather than the burdensome, burdensome toll of that mental health side of things. Yeah, yeah, and that's amazing. And I, and I, I think, you know, from what I'm hearing about that, you're basically just saying to a degree you're talking about emotional health as being 
that, what did you say, 50 bit per second or, you know, the thing that by far trumped the conscious thinking was the subconscious yeah. programming in there and, and what, what's going on deep within your soul. Yeah, that's it. Look, at you said that in one sentence. That took me like 12 minutes of talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's because I was able to process what you were saying, you know, so it would have taken me a while if I hadn't had you. Well, look, thank you so much. I mean, you know, I, I, I love this. And as I said, you know, I could go on all day. I'm mindful of your time. And uh, I feel like maybe, you know, maybe somewhere down the line we can, we can have another conversation and, you know, pick up where we left off. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me on and for shining light out there in the world for us. Yeah, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, looking forward to seeing all that you guys are doing next. And, um, you know, stay warm over there in Canada. And uh, hopefully at some point, you know, we can get over there for a visit. I've always wanted to go there. It looks so beautiful. Well, you come. We'll show you all around. That'd be amazing. All right. Thank you so much. Very good. Thank you. Bye. Bye for now. Wow, so there you have it. That was the chat that I just had with Dr. Vanessa Lapointe. Uh, there was so much in that, um, so many things to revisit, and hopefully we will have Dr. Vanessa on the show at a later date, and uh, we can we can kind of continue where that left off. If you guys got some value from that, and if and if there was some kind of stuff that intrigued you or stirred you or encouraged you, uh, then I would ask that you share this. Give us a rate in the App Store. This is the first time I've asked anyone to do that. I should have been doing this every episode. That's what they tell me. <laughs> but uh, give it a rate and um, uh, we'll see you guys next time.